Well, good morning again. Welcome to Sojourn. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here and just uh, glad that we're able to gather here this morning, even if it's a little toasty in here. Uh, so we're uh, just going to spend some time now as we do every week opening up God's word, opening up the scriptures and preaching. But this morning uh, we get to hear from a good friend of mine from Ben Hine. Ben has been a member of the church. Yeah. Ben has a fan club too, so that's cool. Um, but Ben has been uh, a member of the church for, for almost since the very beginning. Uh, he and his wife, Neva, uh, have been a part of the church serving in so many significant ways over the last few years. Uh, I had the privilege of uh, performing their wedding ceremony for them, which they just celebrated their two-year anniversary uh, just this past week. So, yeah, so Ben is a, is a dear friend, uh, just a good brother. He loves Jesus. He loves this church. He loves Jesus' church. Uh, one of the cool things about Ben and Neva is that Ben, uh, a few years ago, uh, felt uh, that the Lord was calling him not just to serve the church in a, uh, as a volunteer uh, as he worked in the workplace, but to actually jump into vocational ministry. And so Ben's been pursuing that calling uh, as he attends uh, Reformed Theological Seminary here in the D.C. area. He's getting closer and closer to being done. Never closer until you're done. Uh, so he's chipping away at his credits there and doing a great job, loving that, and is continuing to figure out where the Lord's leading him. So it's been great to have him here. Uh, and as we wrap up our Galatians series, Ben's going to be preaching this morning and share with us what God's word has for us this morning. So I know you guys love Ben. I love Ben. Uh, so I'm just thankful to be able to sit under his preaching this morning, and I hope you'll be encouraged by it and blessed by it this morning uh, as Ben serves us in another way as we go into God's word. But I want to pray for Ben before we do that. So would you just bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you so much for this brother. Lord, he is a, uh, a good friend, uh, an encouragement, a blessing. Lord, you've used him in my life. You've used him in many uh, people's lives within this church. And we give you thanks for that. Uh, Lord, and we know that's not because Ben is a, is a rock star, because he's awesome and has so many awesome abilities on his own. It's because of your grace in his life. It's because of your Holy Spirit in him, working in him and through him. And Lord, I know that you have grown him so much, even as I've watched over these last few years, and thankful that today uh, we get to hear from him as he opens up your word and preaches your word to us this morning. So Father, I pray that as Ben preaches, that he would rest in you, that his confidence would be in you this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak through him. Lord, that we would all sit under your word, Ben included, and just allow your word to wash over us today, and that by that, that you would change and transform us. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have blessed this church with people like Ben and, and Neva. We thank you how they have served us in so many different ways. And just pray that today as they serve in this way, as Ben serves in this way, that you would bless him and bless us uh, for being here today. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your love and your grace and your faithfulness to us. And we thank you for Christ who makes all of this possible. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, am I on? All right, well, good morning. Thank you, Justin, for those kind words, and thank you, everyone, for having me. It's a joy and a privilege to be here. This morning, we're going to be preaching from God's Word, as we do every week at Sojourn. We believe that God's Word gives us life through Christ, and so if you're here, you can go ahead and pull out your Bibles or pull out your phones and your apps or whatever it may be. Uh, if you're here and you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to raise your hand. We have some people walking around that can hand you a Bible. And so if you don't own a Bible, we would love it if you could take that home with you. That's our gift for you. And so please take it. So if you have your Bibles out, you can turn to Galatians chapter 6. That's where we'll be today, in Galatians chapter 6. 
And I have been tasked with closing out our summer series on the book of Galatians. So some of you are joining us for the first time or haven't been here all summer. I encourage you to go back and listen to some of those sermons. And today I'm, I'm, excited. I'm, I'm excited to be with you this morning. And I'm excited to be closing our series on the book of Galatians. And one of the big reasons why I'm excited this morning, why I'm fired up, is because I share many of the same passions and desperations that the Apostle Paul has in this letter. You see, he is fired up and he is passionate about what he has to say this morning. And what is it that he has to say? Well, as he's bringing this letter to a close, what he's passionate about is the gospel of grace, the gospel of grace that he first preached to the Galatians that he is now writing to them about in this letter You see, the point Paul is trying to make as he closes this letter is that as Christians, every aspect of our lives must be lived in light of the gospel. The gospel of grace, which Paul has preached to the Galatians, is not merely the entry point of the Christian life, but it is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our lives. The gospel transforms the entirety and every aspect of who we are. You see, if most of us are honest, though, I think we struggle with this. We've heard terms like gospel-centered or Christ-centered living, but we don't actually know what that means for us today. I think most of us have never really understood that Christianity is not simply a self-help religion that's meant to enable moral people to become more moral. We don't need a self-help message. We need a savior. We don't need a collection of rules to follow. We need death and resurrection and the transformation that is brought through the gospel. And we don't need this message just once. We need it every moment of every single day. So what I want to do today as we're walking through the closing passage of Paul's letter is I want to help us see not only how the gospel transforms our life, but also how we can know that we are living in light of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And so as we continue our time this morning... I'm going to read our passage from Galatians chapter 6. The word of the Lord this morning comes to us from the Apostle Paul, starting in verse 11. Please follow with me. The Apostle Paul writes this. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast. Sorry. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, that is, the church. From now On, Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. 
Well, right off the bat, we can see Paul's passion for what he's writing. In verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, there's some debate as to why Paul is writing with large letters in this passage here. Some scholars think that maybe uh, Paul's writing with large letters for a point of emphasis, or perhaps it's a vision problem that he has, which many people believe was his thorn in the flesh that he writes about in 2 Corinthians 12. However, regardless of the reason for his large letters, what must stand out to us is the fact that Paul is writing this letter with his own hand. You see, Paul normally wrote through a scribe, and he would say the words he wanted the scribe to write, and then the scribe would write it down. So for Paul to write this letter himself is a very rare and powerful thing. And so why does Paul point out that he himself is writing this letter? Because he wants his audience to know that as he is drawing this letter to a close, he wants them to pay attention. In effect, what he's saying is, listen up, this is important. And so what is he drawing their attention to? And well, that brings us to our first point together this morning. Our first point is that Paul wants us to understand the principle of what he has to say, and that is this. Our only hope is the gospel. We must take hold of and latch on to the gospel that we have been justified by grace through faith alone, and our identity is now in Christ as a child of God. And so as Paul closes his letter, he makes this point by finally taking aim at the false teachers in verses 12 and 13, the one who have been telling the Galatians to keep circumcision and keep the works of the law. And in these two verses, he gives us three of the motivations behind it, what it is that they are teaching. In verse 12, Paul essentially says that they were emphasizing the works of the law so that they had something to boast in, that they could boast in what they were doing. He also says in verse 12, they want to avoid persecution that came from following the true gospel. So in effect, what they want to do is just live a comfortable life that doesn't mean that they follow the true gospel. They can follow a false gospel and live a life of comfort and peace. Finally, in verse 13, Paul tells us they simply want to boast in the number of followers that will either recommit themselves or commit themselves to keeping circumcision. And so let me ask you this right off the bat. Do any of these sinful motivations sound familiar to us today? Yeah, they should. You don't need to know a Judaizer or someone who's forcing you to keep circumcision to see teachings like this played out on the center of the church stage today. All around us, we see self-help teachers who are far more concerned with giving us checklists to follow rather than preach the word of God. We find treacherous men and women who hand us a so-called prosperity gospel and lead us to believe that following Jesus means being healthy and wealthy or even seemingly innocent things like ministries that focus on numbers and size rather than the conviction of the Holy Spirit. See, this isn't just a distant reality that happened in Galatia 2,000 years ago. This isn't a distant reality of people we see put up on TV or on Facebook. This is happening in our neighborhoods and in churches down the street and on our campuses. So this is why Paul continues in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is now in agony because the beloved people whom he had come to and ministered to, who he had spent time with and loved on and preached the gospel to, were now being led astray by a false teaching which essentially said they need to have faith and keep the work of, works of the law. 
And this breaks Paul's heart because he knows that our only hope is to boast in the saving work of Jesus Christ. But when we subject ourselves to any part of the law, we once again become condemned by it. See, while the Galatians were once following the true gospel, they now have bought into a false gospel which says they must reconcile themselves to God. And so what makes these kinds of false teachings so dangerous is that they come from inside the church, from people who claim to be following Christ, but instead lead people far from him. And so, as Martin Luther says in his infamous Galatians commentary, we must be people who not only know the gospel well, but teach it to others and beat it into our own heads continually. And so before we move on, I just want to challenge those of you who are with us today, who are gathered with us this morning and who don't consider yourself a Christian. I don't know where you're at in your search for truth, for spiritual truth, but I just want to challenge you with one question, and that question is this. Which gospel is it that you are rejecting? Which gospel are you rejecting? Are you rejecting a false and twisted gospel? A gospel that says Christianity is all about being a good person for doing social good for the community or living a healthy and prosperous life for feeling better about yourself? Are you rejecting a gospel of dead religious outward acts? Are you rejecting the caricatured gospel that you read about on Huffington Post religion column? I reject that too. Or are you rejecting the true Christian gospel, which says this, Jesus Christ died for sinners. You see, all of us, apart from God, deserve eternal separation from him because of our rebellion and disobedience. What that means is we are greedy and we have an utter lack of love towards him and everyone around us. Yet in his infinite mercy, love, and grace, he sent his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died so that those who turn from their sin and believe in him will be reconciled to God forever, will have peace with him and be grafted into his family. That is the Christian gospel. And so let me ask you, just leave you with this question. Which gospel is it that you are rejecting? Now this leads us to our second point, and it is hot up here, so forgive me. This leads us to our second point. This true gospel, this true Christian gospel that we believe completely transforms us. The gospel that we believe completely transforms us. Look with me again at verse 15. Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. See, Paul is using very unique language here in verse 15, what he calls the new creation. This is John 3, born-again language that he's using here. It's very similar to the language that he uses in Romans chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians 5, where he explains how those who believe in Christ die to their old self and are raised into new life in Christ. In other words, when we are justified by grace through faith, as Paul has been explaining in the book of Galatians, we become a new creation. When we believe in the work of Christ, God makes us a new creation, and it is nothing short of beautiful. 
friends. Jesus Christ, the one in whom all things were created and the one for whom all things were created. He subjected himself to the creation in order to make us a new creation. Isaiah 53, the prophet tells us that Christ Jesus would set aside his immense beauty and would make himself undesirable and ugly to us in order that in exchange he would make us beautiful. And we've seen something like this even in nature, right? Think of a caterpillar and a butterfly. This ugly little crawling creature that you see crawling on the ground becomes this beautiful winged butterfly with patterns and colors that completely set apart what it used to be as a caterpillar. What we see with our eyes is that something that was once ugly becomes beautiful. Something that was old becomes brand new. When we become justified by faith, as Paul says in chapter 2, when we become adopted as sons and daughters, as Paul explains to us in chapter 4, we become a new creation. We cross over from death to life. We are slaves who have been set free, adulterers who become a splendid bride. Friends, we are God's children. And there is no child of God who is not also incredibly beautiful. Why? Because God is beautiful, and what he's doing in making you a new creation is he is restoring his beautiful image inside of you. This morning, I just want to say, if you're struggling this morning, if you're struggling, I want you to know that our status, who we are, what we are, everything about us has changed Our hearts and our affections change as we come to desire God and His glory over our own. Our hearts become tuned to the glory of God that we become instruments playing the great melody of His grace. Just as every new day begins with the most beautiful sunrise, so too does our life as a new creation in Christ mark the beginning of a life where we are a canvas for God to paint the most beautiful array of colors and lights and textures as he displays his beauty and his glory and his grace in us. And so this morning, if you're struggling, brothers and sisters, I want you to hear this. If you're struggling with the self-torture of shame and regret, if you're facing seemingly insurmountable doubt and fear over your life, if the abominable monster of depression is clouding your very thoughts this morning, I want you to see that you are a beautiful new creation in Christ and you are not defined by any of those things. It doesn't matter what you've done this week, what sin has held you in bondage for too long. It doesn't matter if you've walked in here this morning after giving in to the lust and temptation of pornography and you're now you're racked with guilt and your heart is hardened and you're feeling bitter. It doesn't matter. I've been there. Don't let that bitterness and that hard-heartedness of your heart overcome you. It is toxic and it will destroy you. And so if you're here this morning, I want to say to you, if, if you're here and you've placed your faith in Christ, then you are free from those things. You are free from the bondage of your sin. You are forgiven and loved and regarded as God's child. You are a beautiful new creation. So be free and relish in your Savior this morning. Let this beautiful, incredible work that God has done in us this morning wash over you and stir your heart. You see, this is what ultimately sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. It comes after our hearts. 
Christ did not come after us so that our outward acts would simply change, but so that our, our hearts, our motivational centers, our desires, our affections would change and find their joy and delight in Him. And so I also want to say to those of you this morning who, if you're here and you're someone who has always considered themselves a Christian, maybe you were born into a Christian family or you prayed a prayer when you were four or you were confirmed in your family's church and you've always considered yourself a Christian, whatever the case may be, but this morning, maybe you're realizing for the first time that this new creation work has never actually happened in your heart. That your heart has never been transformed by the beauty of the gospel. I want to say to you, let today be that day. Don't let your pride in a past experience or waiting till a future day or a future week or a time where you think you're going to have it all figured out. Today is the day that God's grace is extended to you, perhaps for the first time. I'm not telling you to recommit your life to Christ. I'm saying perhaps you need to commit your life to Christ for the very first time. God's grace is extended to you today, even if you've been sitting in a church every Sunday morning your whole life. Well, Paul continues this train of thought in verse 16 when he writes, And as for all who walk by this rule, what rule? That the only thing that counts for anything is the saving new creation work that God has done in us. And you see, what Paul is saying here is that our lives have not been tweaked, but transformed. And we can now present ourselves to the Lord through his powerful grace. Paul makes the same point in the book of Romans chapter 6, verse 17, when he writes, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you were once committed. Did you catch that? Because of the new creation work that God has done in us, our obedience now comes from the heart. That is, our desires and our affections. So when we go through this transformation of the new creation, we must begin, then begin to allow our minds and our thoughts and how we view things to be transformed by what has, been, what has happened in us. We need to start thinking from the perspective of someone who has been changed at their very core See, I think many Christians are spiritually stunted because they try to live out commands before they see what God has actually done in their heart and they've experienced what God has done in their heart. This is why Paul instructs us on the doctrines of justification by faith in chapter 2 and then the doctrine of spiritual adoption before he gets into exhortations in chapter 5 because he wants us to know who we are before telling us how to live. And so Evan and Alan have helped us see, as we walked through chapter 5 the last few weeks, some of the practical ways that Paul exhorts us to live out our justifying faith and adopted identity in Christ. Now, Paul wants us to see at this point that this new creation reality is something that must transform the way we view everything, what we do, what we think, how we love others, what we view and what we watch and what we read, how we think and say things, our motivations, our desires, everything about us must change. So what does it mean to walk by the rule of the new creation in our everyday situations and circumstances? So I just want to try now um, to try and apply this a little bit by brainstorming with you and sort of scheming together for a few minutes. And to start with, I want to talk about what it means to live as a new creation in our workplaces. 
you know, for whatever reason, I think we have a bit of a culture at Sojourn where we don't really talk about our vocations intentionally with one another. You see, the reality, though, for most of us is that all of us have a vocation, whether it's a student or a full-time job in the marketplace, full-time stay-at-home parent. And those vocations take up the majority of our waking hours every week. And so we need to be people that learn to how to intentionally engage the subject of work and vocation with one another so the reality of the new creation can change the way we work. And so some of you know that uh, back when, back in uh, 2011, I started a job in the area as an uh, IT consultant for a consulting company in the area. And as I share the story, I don't want to give you the idea that it was, a, it was a terrible job or a bad job. In many ways, it was great. You know, it paid well and had good coworkers and all of that. But here's the rub. Um, at times, this workplace could be a very hostile environment. See, it was one of these places where if you wanted to, wanted to succeed, you had to play the game. And that meant that anytime something went wrong, a, a project broke or something failed and you had to work a late night, if you weren't the first person to jump into a meeting and defend yourself and accuse somebody else, or the first person to jump on the email chain and blame somebody else and defend yourself, you see, you were going to be the one being thrown under the bus. So you had to play the game if you wanted to get ahead. Can any of you relate to that kind of work environment? Now, admittedly, I, uh, I contributed to the hostility of this workplace a lot of times, and so uh, by all accounts of things, I failed to live as a Christian in that work environment. But in retrospect, what I really wish had happened during that time is that I'd had someone who had come alongside of me, someone who could come alongside of me and help me see how my faith shapes what I do in the workplace. Someone who would come alongside of me and say, brother, what would it look like for you, instead of being someone who is quick to accuse others and quick to defend yourself, to be someone who instead is quick to admit their own failures and quick to defend others? Why? Why would anybody do something like that in a hostile environment like that? Well, when we as Christians look to the cross and we see that Jesus was quick to take the fall for us and now lives to defend and intercede for us before God, see, that is the reality. When we see how Christ laid aside his life for us and now defends us before God, that has the capability to change how we view our workplace and our relationships. See, it's not about living a command of how you work or a checklist to check off. We're not checklist people. We're death and resurrection people. And so we need the reality of what Christ has done to transform how we view our workplaces. Or how about those of you who maybe work in management or some sort of authoritative position? The scriptures tell us that all authority of any kind comes from God. And so in light of the gospel, when you see how Christ laid aside his authority for the sake of others, how does that change the way you view your responsibility in the workplace? Are you someone who can just tell others what to do? Or are you in a position of being able to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others? Are you someone who can now defend the person under you who makes a mistake? Can you invest time in a new employee when nobody else wants to? You see, something that seems so insignificant as a few minutes in a day can and must be transformed by the reality of the new creation. And so what I want us to see this morning is that we must intentionally pursue living out our vocations in light of the gospel. We are a new creation, and that is what new creation people do. 
And I know I'm being rather broad here. I can't hit everyone sitting in this room. But what I'm trying to get us to see is that we must allow the new creation to change the way we think about what we do on a daily basis. So if you're a mom or a full-time student, you can ask yourself similar questions. One way I just want to encourage you this week, start thinking about this, is at some point this week, preferably before community group, is to just sit down with a piece of paper, writing utensil, and just write out what your average workday looks like, your meetings, your tasks, who you interact with. And then I want you to start looking at those things on your schedule and ask yourself questions like this. How does the gospel inform how I do this task? In this meeting with these coworkers that I have hard, a hard time with, how does the gospel inform how I treat and interact with them? How does the gospel inform what I say and who I say it to? And so the reason why I want you to do this before community group this week is because I want you to take that brainstorming activity and I want you to take it to community group this week because part of what we're going to do this week is talk about that with people in our community group, help encourage one another to see how the gospel and the new creation work can change what we do on a daily basis. I also just want to say that if you're lacking for any ideas in this department, if you want to know or just be encouraged by what other people are doing, I want you to talk to some of the teachers that we have here in this church. Dare I say, I would be willing to put my neck on the line to say that we have some of the best teachers in the county sitting with us in this room right now. To the teachers in this room, I just want to say to you that I am continually amazed by the love and heart that you have for your coworkers and your students and their parents, the time that you put in even after you leave school every day. And so as we begin this new school year, I just want to say to you, keep going. Keep scheming and and seeing how the gospel can transform how you do your work. Keep scheming for the kingdom and seeking to live out your faith in the workplace. You are in such a position of influence in this county to impact children and parents and families. And so keep going. Keep going. So when we think about our workplaces, we are seeing how the new creation transforms what we do and how we do it. But you see, the reality of the new creation also changes why we even obey at all. And so I want to ask you this question this morning. It's a bit of a personal question, but I want to ask you this. Why should you as a Christian pursue sexual purity? Why should you as a Christian pursue sexual purity? I mean, obviously we're all in different stages of life here, so some of us are married, some of us are not, and so that's a question that you have to answer for yourself based on your stage of life. But some of you might say when you hear that question, well, the Bible tells us that Sex is to take place in between marriage of one man and one woman, and so therefore I'm not going to do anything outside of that. And you know, that's, that's true. We need God's word to tell us what is true and what God desires for our lives. But you see, this is where we must allow the beauty of the new creation work that God has done in us to pierce our hearts. See, when we are wooed by the gospel, when our hearts and our affections are stirred by what God has done, our answers to these kinds of questions are no longer simply based on some standard of outward obedience, but based on the desires of our hearts. So in light of the gospel, what do you know to be true? Well, we know that our true groom, Jesus Christ, laid down his life that he might redeem his bride, the church. And so as a member of his bride, we are now people who have the privilege of taking part in the process of purification as we look forward to the day when we are presented to our groom in glory. So do you see how that reality 
the new creation reality can change your motivations and desires for obedience. Our obedience is no longer simply based on an outward standard, but it comes out of the desires of a changed heart. So when we consider sexual purity in our lives, whether that's remaining pure before marriage or fleeing the temptations of lust, of pornography, and things like that, whatever it may be, see, it's not enough for us to say anymore because the Bible says so. But we can now say, I have the privilege and honor of being a part of Christ's bride. How could I do anything but remain committed and faithful to him? Don't you know what he's done for me? See, it's a heart change. It's a heart change. Obedience comes from the heart. And so how does the gospel stir your heart? How does the new creation beauty stir your heart this morning? This morning? Now, as we come to a close on the book of Galatians, I want us to answer one last question together. It's a question that Paul answers just as he's closing this letter, and that question is this. How do we know when we are living in light of the gospel? How do we know? How do we know when the gospel has transformed our lives and we are living as a new creation? So I want you to imagine for a minute the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter. Now, when I say imagination, I'm not talking about some sort of ridiculous Disney imagination where Paul is playing with fairy tale creatures or riding around on a unicorn or anything like that. What I'm saying is try to imagine the scenario and situation that Paul is writing in. You see, one of the mental faculties that God has given to us for understanding his word is our imagination. And so we are sorely missing out if we don't use it when we study the scriptures. And so here's the Apostle Paul. He's at the close of his letter. He has just finished this passionate, emotionally charged letter to a group of people he dearly loves. He's oscillated between emotions like anger and frustration and confusion to love and despair and brokenness. You know how a 30-minute emotionally charged conversation is far more exhausting than a 12-hour workday? That's Paul right now. And now he's considering how he's going to close this letter. What is he going to write? What would you write? So here he is. He's arched over his letter, and you know, he's got his pen in one hand. And he's staring at this letter that he's been pouring his soul into. And he's kind of doing one of these things, you know, where he's kind of staring at the page, and he just kind of starts rubbing his back with his other hand. You know, he's thinking kind of doing one of these things. And suddenly, he feels the scars on his back from where he was beaten in Macedonia. He remembers the ache in his jaw that never quite healed right after he was stoned outside of Lystra and left for dead. He feels the dull pain in his knees that still crack because they never healed after he was shipwrecked outside of Malta. And then he puts his pen to paper and he writes this. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. As if to say, you of the circumcision party, you Judaizers, you want a physical mark to boast in? Boast in the marks and scars that you get for enduring suffering and affliction for the sake of the gospel. Galatians, you want to know who is truly following Christ? Look at the one who can identify with him in his suffering. 
The term Paul is using here for marks is a word you might have heard before. Literally, Paul is saying that I bear on my body the stigmata of Jesus. Stigmata is a term that was used for branding slaves so they could show who their master was, who they belonged to. And so this brings us to our third and final point. The suffering, trial, and hardship we endure for the sake of the gospel is proof that we belong to our King, Jesus Christ. Let me briefly define for you what kind of suffering I'm talking about here so we're all on the same page. In this life as Christians, we will face all kinds of suffering. We will face all kinds of affliction. Some of it is a general suffering like sickness or the death of a loved one or a job loss because of the economy. Many of you are feeling this kind of general suffering today. And while I can't address this specific kind of general suffering from this text today, I want you to know that many of the things I'm going to say apply to general suffering. And my hope is that you will find comfort in God's grace and what he's doing in you this morning. But there is also a particular kind of Christian suffering, which is any suffering, trial, or hardship that comes from living out the implications of the gospel and living for God's glory rather than ourselves. Friends, I know that this can be a hard pill for us to swallow. I know. We live in a suffering-averse culture And I think most of us in this room, myself included, we have given in to the lie that all suffering is bad and must be alleviated at all costs. But as Christians, we must come to embrace what God is doing in the midst of our suffering and trial through the power of his grace. You know, Jesus, in John 15 and 16, he promised that those who follow him will suffer The entire letter of 1 Peter is written to a group of Christians who are facing trial and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Paul writes about it in places like 2 Timothy 3 where he says, all those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. And these are just a few of the passages that make it evident that we will suffer for living a life of obedience to our Savior. And if you study these passages... And what the scripture has to say about our suffering, what you will find is that our afflictions are the means by which God intends to not only identify us with Jesus and know that we are his, but they are also the process that God uses to make us collectively more like Jesus. If we turn back to the pages of Galatians chapter 5, even our sermon from last week, think about the command to bear one another's burdens. See, when you are in the midst of deep suffering, and our empathetic high priest, our high priest that the author of Hebrews writes about, the one who can sympathize with you in your weaknesses, when he comes to you and restores you in the midst of your suffering through the power of his grace, see, now you then have empathy and comfort to take it to someone else as you're helping them bear their burden, And then the comfort that they've received from you, they're going to take to their friends who are burdened and suffering in the midst of affliction. So you see, the trial that God puts us through, the suffering that we endure in this life, we might not even see the fruit that comes from it because through your trial this morning, what you are going through, God plans to use it to build up his church and to edify his people. And you see this, if we just go back for a minute, 
if we go back to the false teachers, this is what makes their false teaching so horrible. It's not just that they're theologically wrong, which is true, but so much of us get caught up in theological debate and we forget that they are depriving God's people of the means by which they, that God wants to build them up and to transform them and make them more like Jesus. They are starved. They are deprived. So this is the perspective for those of us who know the true gospel. This is the perspective we must have. As blood-bought sinners, we must be prepared to suffer for the gospel. And some of you know this firsthand already. Some of you in this room have gone through immense suffering and trial for your faith, something that I know nothing about and can't even comprehend. And I want to say to you, if that's you, you this morning, if you're still here to tell of how God's grace got you through that, then one of the means that God has for you now today is to help the rest of us prepare for the suffering that is to come. We need you. We need what God has done in you to help transform us. But I think for a lot of us, we read these verses or hear messages like this and think, well, Christian suffering means that my life, uh, Christian suffering means that my life will look like, uh, my life will be threatened and my religious freedoms will be taken away. So unless that's happening, I probably won't really suffer. As if to say, we can fit into society so long as we have freedom. But see, that's, we weren't, we're not a people who was ever meant to simply just fit in. That is a lie that we all bought from the days of the so-called moral majority. You see, we won't face suffering and trials when religious freedoms are taken away. We'll suffer when we live according to the teachings of Paul that he's laid out in the book of Galatians. When we live a life in faith of what Christ has done for his people. When the new creation transformation that has taken place in our hearts causes us to lay down our time and our money and our lives for the sake of Christ's kingdom. That is when we will suffer, friends. See, while our souls are at peace with God, we will now be at enmity with the world. And this is the reality of the new creation. Many of you know, as Justin was saying earlier, about three years ago to the day, I started pursuing a path to full-time vocational ministry. And you know, at the time, I was under the impression that being faithful to live out what God had for me meant that things in my life would come easy for me. I thought that faithfulness meant a life of comfort and ease. And instead, soon after I began down this road, I was met with three months of unemployment. Medical bills were stacking up that I had trouble paying due to some surgeries that I had. Soon after that, I was hit with incredible amounts of anxiety and I was hooked up to all the heart machines and the monitors to make sure that my palpitations weren't uh, a condition but were just something that was caused psychosomatically and, you know, all I needed was just some chemicals to help me calm down. Eventually, that morphed into an all-out depression, which to this day still flares up. And listen, I'm not sharing this story with you to say or suggest that vocational ministry is harder or a better calling or anything like that. If you've been told something like that, I want you to know that that is ridiculous. That's not what I'm trying to say this morning. What I'm sharing this story with you, what I want to say is that all of us are given a call and a responsibility from God where living faithfully to it will consequently bring trial and suffering and affliction of some kind. And so I don't know what that's going to look like for you. I just want to share a little bit about what that's looked like 
for me. And so back when I started down this road and all of this started happening, you know, I had no paradigm for seeing my trial and suffering as something that identified me with my Savior. I had no filter for seeing what the Lord would do in me in the midst of my trials and hardships. But in retrospect, in retrospect, after seeing the incredible amount of growth that the Lord has done in me, after seeing my increase in love and devotion because of his faithfulness to me in the midst of hard circumstances, after hearing my wife point out how I've become more empathetic and sympathetic to God's people, I can tell you from the bottom of my heart, if I could go back and make different choices that would cause me to avoid those situations, I wouldn't. I would make the same decisions in a heartbeat. Why? Because praise be to God that he has shown me just a glimpse of his grace, that it is better for me to take the hit, to get the scars, to get a little beaten up, to live a life for his glory, rather than living a life of my own comfort according to my selfish desires. See, this morning, I want us to be a people who can pray with David, not only that it was good that I was afflicted, but it is good that I am afflicted now. And friends, again, I'm not sharing this with you from a point of strength in this area. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I still struggle to this day to see what God has for me in the midst of my afflictions. Every day, I pray that God would remove the dark seeds of depression from me, the dark seeds of despair, but in the midst of it, I pray that he would continue to make me more like Jesus because I know he's faithful to do that even when I can't see it. You see, when we live our lives according to the gospel, life will become more difficult for us. Look, if you won't play the office politics game in your workplace because of what you know to be true and the way your heart has been transformed by the new creation, you might not get the promotion. In fact, you might be fired. To my unmarried friends in here, if you live according to the high sexual purity ethical standards that we talked about earlier, if you live a life according to that, you'll probably be laughed at. In this, in this society, in this sexually charged society, you'll be mocked. Your friends will come to you and say, if they don't abandon you, they'll come to you and say, why do you take this Jesus thing so seriously? Won't you be happier if you maybe just lower your standards a little bit? But because of the beauty of the gospel and what Christ has done to make you a new creation, when the ridicule and the mockery comes, whatever way it might look in your life, when that comes, you can look those people in the eye and say, excuse me, but when did you die for me? No, I will gladly live a life of obedience for the one who has shown me far greater love than any relationship or worldly job ever could. See, that's the confidence that Paul has confidence Paul has. I know, I know some of you are hearing this and thinking, wow, this is not a very encouraging way to end this sermon series. But friends, there is nothing more encouraging than I can do this morning than to prepare you for the reality that suffering 
will come. But when you do, you have a Savior who endured the greatest suffering and scorn to the end for you, who now stands before the throne with all of his scars and his marks that he endured for your sake and for my sake as he's pleading before the throne of God in the midst of your suffering, asking that God would give you the spirit of his grace and his comfort to strengthen you in the midst of your trial and suffering. See, he understands you and that is the Savior that we have. And if we could just see him, in the midst of our suffering, even for a second, wouldn't that change the way we suffer and the way we perceive our trials? Paul had seen the glory and the beauty of the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road, and it was so great that it blinded him. You see, when we come to savor and relish in the immense mercy and love and grace in Christ of what Christ has done for us in the gospel when we come to see the incredible beauty of the new creation, we are given the strength to endure suffering and affliction. We are given strength to endure through the power of his grace as he writes in verse 18 as he closes, the grace of our Lord be with your spirit, brothers. It is grace that saves us and grace that keeps us. And so in this life, we will gladly get beaten up. We will take the hit. We will get scarred. We will get knocked down, but we'll get back up and we'll keep moving because we follow the beaten, bruised, but beautiful, risen king. Some of you might be familiar with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She was formerly a non-Christian, lesbian, English professor at Syracuse University. She specialized in postmodern literature and queer theory, but in the spring of 1999, she was converted to Christianity and it completely flipped her life upside down in a way that she describes as nothing short than a train wreck. That fall, she was scheduled to give a talk to all of the incoming graduate students at her university. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which is a book that all of you must read if you haven't, she describes a scenario of what it was like to prepare for this talk. And I think she describes what I'm getting at perfectly. She writes, and I quote, When I became a Christian, I had to change everything. My life, my friends, my writing, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was tenured to a field that I could no longer work in. I was the faculty advisor to all of the gay and lesbian and feminist groups on campus. I was writing a book that I no longer believed in, and I was scheduled in a few months to give the incoming address to all of Syracuse University's graduate students. What in the world would I say to them? The lecture that I had written and planned to deliver on queer theory, I threw in the trash. Thousands of new students would hear my first fledgling attempts to speak about Christian hermeneutics at a postmodern university. I was flooded with doubt about my new life in Christ. Was I willing to suffer like Christ? See, friends, that's the question. Was I willing to suffer like Christ? Was I willing to be considered stupid by those who didn't know Jesus? See, the world's eyes register what a life in Christ takes away, but how do I communicate all that it gives? Peter, after being beaten for preaching the gospel, rejoiced that he was counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. That's Acts 5.41. I pondered this. To the world, this is masochism. To the Christian, this is freedom. Did I really believe this 
And do I really believe this today? End quote. Do you see what she is saying? Our lives as Christians are completely transformed because we are a new creation. And when we start living a life according to the transformation that God has done in us, we will face trial and sufferings of many kind. We will face hardship. Life will be difficult for all of us to varying degrees and in different ways. Beloved, Jesus Christ died so that all of those who believe in him will be justified by faith and be reconciled to him forever. Those who have been reconciled to him, who have, they have a complete identity change because they have gone from being strangers to friends. They have gone from being orphans to adopted children of God. In essence, we are a new creation. And that transforms not only how we view ourselves, but how we view and interact with God's church, his people, and everyone who is still living apart from God. The transformed lives we live as a new creation in Christ will take us through immense suffering in this life. And while that might not make sense to us now or in the moment, I promise you that when we arrive on the other side of glory and we see the risen Christ in all of his beauty and his splendor, all of his scars and his wounds that he took with him to heaven, we see how beautiful he is standing before the throne of God. I promise you it will finally all make sense. We'll realize that through the trial and the pain, the sorrow and the affliction, God was making us more beautiful because he was making us more, him, making us more like his son. So in a moment, we're going to come forward to take communion and there'll be trays up front and in the back. I want to say to those of you who I talked to earlier in our sermon, I challenged with the question, which gospel are you rejecting? If that's you this morning, I don't want you to come forward to take communion and that's not because I'm being exclusive or our church is exclusive. It's because this is an act of worship for us, for those of us who have committed our lives to Christ. And so it doesn't mean anything to you. For you, it would just be a dead religious outward act. And so instead this morning, I want you to sit in your seat and think about that question. Which gospel is it that I'm rejecting? For the rest of you who will be coming forward, you can come forward when you're ready. The gospel will be spoken over you as you take a piece of bread in the cup. I want to say to you this morning, a special word to those of you who are going through any kind of suffering or trial this morning, and there are many of you. I want you to come quickly to the table this morning because I want you to see this morning in the act of what you're doing. This is an act of worship, but what you're seeing is the crucified but risen Christ and the suffering he endured for your sake. And I want you to have comfort in that this morning. So come forward quickly and come forward when you're ready. Friends, Jesus Christ died. Galatians 2.20, he gave himself for me, for us, because he loved us. That is the anthem of our lives and that is what transforms us to live a life for his glory and his praise. Let's pray. Father, I must admit that I am in some way 
burdened by this message because I know that I am and was wholly inadequate to give it, Lord, but you sustain through your grace. You sustain all of us through your grace. It is through your grace that you have given us your word. It's through your grace and your word that you feed us and give us Christ. And so, Father, my prayer for us this morning as we go out from here, as we close this series on the book of Galatians, that we would be people who recognize what it means to be a new creation in your grace, what it means to live a life according to the gospel, what it means to be adopted children of God, what it means to be beautiful because you are restoring your image in us. Father, I pray that that truth, that reality would transform our lives for everybody in here this morning. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for your word. And we love you. And Lord, would you give us grace this morning, even as we continue to sing to you in this time of worship, in this time of communion. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.